0: nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage.
1: And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
0: And we met in Iowa City about three years ago.
1: That is correct, where we both went to graduate school at the Iowa Writers Workshop, although in different time periods. Uh, We had some of the same teachers and read some of the same things, because certain things about the workshop don't change. And we both got to know the workshop's amazing coordinator, Connie Brothers.
0: So for this episode, we're going back to our graduate school roots. Later in the episode, we're going to talk to Tom Grimes about the history of the workshop. But first, we're also going to celebrate Connie's retirement. She spent 40 years welcoming emerging writers to Iowa City. And this weekend, lots of those writers are converging in Iowa City to honor her. And we're here, too.
1: We're joined by workshop director and repeat podcast guest, Lan Samantha Chang the Iowa City-based writer uh, Josh Barkin, and many of the 300-plus workshop grads who attended Connie's retirement celebration. And the truth is, we've never really done an episode like this, so it's a little bit of an experiment for us. You're not going to hear us do our normal two-guest interview. Instead, you're going to hear us talk to a series of voices about Connie Brothers If you didn't go to the Iowa Writers Workshop and you're wondering, why does this matter to me? I think that's a reasonable question, but I think what we would argue is that for somebody who's worked at this program for over, for 45 years, Connie Brothers has touched a tremendous number of writers that we've had on this show and people that you've read. And also, I think there is something special about her as a person in an organization that is universal. So bear with us on this experiment and... Listen to what everyone has to say about Connie. Hopefully it'll turn in to a complete picture. All right, hey, we're gonna talk to uh, Scott Anderson, uh, author of Lawrence in Arabia and many other fine books. who was a classmate of mine at the Iowa Writers Workshop about his uh, Connie memory.
2: So when I applied to the workshop, I was—I I never went to college, and I was so clueless about about how higher education worked that I didn't even really—I did <laughs> didn't even really understand what like a master's program meant. So anyway, I applied and I got in, but because I'd never gone to undergraduate school, I came as an undergraduate freshman, and so my first year at Iowa, I was. I, you know I was, I was in the program, but I was I was an undergraduate freshman. and I, then I got, I got a, a teaching writing fellowship for the second year. and Connie, she kind of in, it, I think it was it was like a little game for her. so she she I mean, she knew that I wasn't qualified to get the fellowship. Um, but she waited until halfway through the fall semester where I was already teaching a class. And so I I'm, I'm teaching a junior level class. I'm a sophomore, undergraduate. And so at that point, while I was halfway through, she goes to the administration, goes, Hey, look, we've got an undergraduate sophomore teaching a a 300 level class. So it's like, we've got to, we've, you know, we've, we've got to make the guy a graduate student. And so that's how I got into graduate school. Um, So I ended up the university, I don't know if they'd ever done this before, but they basically just, my first year didn't count. Uh, for, so I ended up being here for three years, and so now I have a courtesy of Connie. I have a master's degree with no underdog. <laughs> <laughs> and I could I, I could tell with Connie. I mean, she liked me and everything, but it was also a lot of it was like seeing what she could get away, what she could get away on the system, you know, what she could pull off.
1: Now I've hijacked from the party, Marcus Burke, who is author of Team 7 and a former guest of, on this podcast and and now a professor at Texas Tech who's going to talk to us about a Connie Brothers
3: memory. Connie Brothers memory. There, there are many Connie Brothers memories, but uh, I think really my one of my most, one of my, one, one, I guess it was my welcome to Iowa moment. I remember I got here and I was... I thought it was going to be like the crucible of writing or something. You know, you hear all these rumors yeah. about Iowa, and then... It is that. It was that And dream. Well, it wasn't that. Well, it was very good, but, you know, it wasn't what I... It, it didn't live up to the horror stories. <laughs> 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 and I remember I called Connie, and I was a full fellow, so I didn't really know what I was doing, and so I called her, and I was like, hey, Connie, like, uh, am I missing any class? Like, you know, what do I do? And she was just kind of like, well, honey, um... Have you set up your direct deposit? <laughs> I was like, yeah. She was like, well, I don't know. Do you like do you like to to, to swim or bike? <gasps> she was like, you know, you should maybe go take a walk around. You could go ride, or you should read. And then I kind of, I don't know, I feel like I, you know, started to understand. They really give you the freedom to do whatever it is that you need to do yeah. to contribute to your art. <laughs> No judgment. (laughs)
1: That's nice. That's perfect. So I'm here with the famed Deb West, who is Program Secretary at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and I know that she has worked with Connie for many years, and I wanted to talk to her, I wanted to talk to you, Deb, a little bit about You know, we're gonna have a lot of writers on to talk about their relationship with Connie, but you're on the other side of that equation, right? What it's like to be somebody who's working with the writers. Um, And I wonder if you could just talk about that job and its its particular demands or rewards or irritations, and then what made Connie good at it in your view?
4: I think Connie's always been really good at it because she's like your typical Jewish mother. And She she really was. I mean, she always wanted to feed you, and she wanted to help you in some way or other. Um, it's going to be really sad to have her go. I'm going to miss her a lot. I've worked with her for 31 years.
1: Oh, my God. So what is your earliest memory of Connie?
4: The When I went over to interview for the job, I remember I was all decked out in a skirt and a jacket and high heels and when I came in Frank was sitting at his desk smoking a cigarette and Connie was there and also Marvin Bell was there because he also interviewed me. And I remember Frank asking me why I wanted to leave my other job on the other side of the river and I said because the medical students are dicks, (laughs) you know. So I, I remember a lot of the past and it makes me sad with Connie leaving, I mean it's just I don't know how much the program's going to change, and it's kind of scary to think of, and sad. Thank
1: you. Hey, this is Witch just stepping in to say that from now on, when people say Frank, what they mean is Frank Conroy, who was director of the Iowa Writers' Workshop from 1987 to 2005. Other directors that we might refer to are Paul Engel, who was director from 1941 to 1965, Jack Leggett, who was director from 1969 to 1986, although Sam will later say 1970 to 1987, which seems like the same damn thing to me. And Lan Samantha Chang, who people call Sam, was director from 2006 to now. <laughs> All right, now we have, uh, we've, we've hauled in for the dinner uh, Jerry Rennick, uh, class of 93, yep. who was. Uh, also there when I was at Iowa, and he's gonna talk to
5: us a little bit about Connie. My favorite thing about Connie, or my favorite memory about Connie was, uh, I believe my second year, um, a classmate called me up out of the blue, and she said, "Connie, Connie said that you're the one to talk to if I'm having a terrible time because you really love it here. And so I proceeded to give this woman the pep talk. And it was sort of nice knowing that Connie was treating me as the cheerleader for the writer's workshop. Uh, that meant a lot to me. And she seemed to, and I think like a lot of people, she took a lot of people under her under wing. And she definitely took me under her wing. Uh, got me a, one of the summer, summer programs. Uh, Teaching programs, and my final year, where I stayed around for the summer, uh, the department secretary was out of town, so Connie actually hired me to to work as a department secretary for a few weeks. So I, you know, had some extra money until I went back home.
1: So here we are with uh, Diane Louis, who's class of '81 at the Writers Workshop. Her book, Fra- book of poetry, Fractal Shores, which is being published by the University uh, of Georgia Press is a winner of the National Poetry Series this year, is that right?
6: 2019.
1: 2019, which is fantastic. And she is going to talk to us about what she remembers about Connie Brothers.
7: Yeah.
6: I first met her the way so many people at Iowa meet her, which is when something isn't working, you go find Connie. and Well, you go find Connie, that's the first thing. and. Um, So what year would this have been? 1979. Okay. So for me, it was that in fiction, you were asked to... I was in both workshops, and in fiction, you were asked to um, list your preference in order for the workshop section. And I had been put in my third choice. So I walked into Connie's office, and I said, But I want to work with the only woman here who's here for that semester, which was Hilma Wulitzer. And Connie, I don't really remember what Connie said, but she made no promises, I'm sure. And she also <laughs> told me that my third choice was probably a very, was not, my- she told me that my third choice was a very good teacher as well, <laughs> and I would learn a lot. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm sure I left the, you know, I was much calmed down. Um, and of course, Connie, doing what Connie does, I was then switched to Helma's workshop.
0: We're here with Antoine Wilson. His most recent novel is Panorama City, but long before he published Panorama City, he was unpublished and he came back to Iowa City and ran into Connie Brothers.
8: Oh yeah, so um, this was back in the day, a couple of years after I graduated. I was in town for some reason or other and of course, I had to make my um, walk through the dye house and um, maybe see Jim McPherson and a few other things. And I yeah, said hi to everybody and so on and so forth. And then I was walking out and I was on the walkway, halfway to the sidewalk, when the door bu- to the dye house busts open behind me and I hear Antoine. And it's Uh, Connie and she comes running out uh, onto the walking path and she takes my hands and says to me, keep writing, you're really good. And uh, that was just a very uh, special moment for me, I mean, as you can imagine.
0: Our podcast listeners can't hear this, but I am verklempt at the story. I love, I love the idea that, um, you know, she would encourage all of us. Um, well, that's, then I
8: began to wonder, maybe she said it to everybody. And then, but then after that thought, I thought, um, even if she does, that's fine too.
1: All right. I'm here with, uh, Chris Adrian, who's class of 95 a year after me. And he's the author of the children's hospital and gobs grief. And he's taught here as well. Uh, so he has a long history with the workshop and with Connie, and I wanted to know what his Connie brother's story was.
9: Um, so I don't actually remember when I met Connie. It all blurs into one sort of big initial EPB <laughs> moment. Um, of, um, we were in the crappy place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the riot proof. dark riot proof building Um, but I maybe the the memory I'll share is uh, sort of when things it felt like things sort of came around and I understood who Connie was or what she was doing the things that that were invisible to me in a way when I was a student um, uh, weren't so invisible anymore when I was when I came back to teach, uh, and that oh, was, that would be interesting, mm, right? The administrative part, mm-hmm. um, and that was then that I had a one of my students was was having trouble, um, and uh, didn't come, stop coming to class, um, uh, or sort of came sometimes, um, but was, um, um, but was in sort of caught up in in. in uh, caught up in something that I, I didn't know much about and didn't understand, um, and I didn't—I think I didn't know what I didn't understand. And so, what I saw was somebody who wasn't working hard, right. um, and who felt like well, the, what, what what they were asking for or what was being proposed was going to be unfair compared to the other students. And just when I was about to pull the trigger on. Punishing her in a way, um, uh, Connie took me aside quietly and was like, without saying, you know, you t- was more or less like, well, you're, you know, you're the, you're the teacher, um, you can do whatever you want, but here are some things that you should understand about what's been going on before uh-huh. you make your decision, um, and it changed everything. And I was like, oh, this is the person who. Takes care of everybody, right? Um, and, um, uh, so and she's like a
1: translator between the
9: students uh-huh. and the faculty in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that um, I was, you could see, like, a faculty member was like, uh-huh. "They might not be interpreting uh-huh. this properly." <laughs> uh-huh. So, yes, yeah, I think she saw and understood things that 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 was, yeah, that that was part of her her purview, um, uh, and her compassion was so enormous that it made up for lapses in other people's compassion and understanding, um, which, is, which is pretty neat.
0: All right, and now we're here with Josh Barkin, whose most recent book is Mexico. He graduated from the workshop in 1995, and he is also from Iowa City and has known Connie for a long time.
10: yeah, I was just, uh, everyone has said so much about Connie, but the, the thing I was just thinking, she was on a commune. What once yeah. and she was and uh, I probably shouldn't say that she met husband number one there, <gasps> but um, and I don't know all the details, but but I will say that uh, so you know that giving generous side, that kind of almost peacenik side. Is it, it almost? It's it's more than almost. That's the point. No one was tonight. I mean, because we're we're at this whole get together in Iowa City. I don't think anyone's mentioned that kind of hyper idealistic side that um, that Connie has, and it's a very it comes from a very genuine place. I I think it was even out in California. I don't want to uh, give it away. Not that obviously it's crazy, but what I mean is she was of the period, and I think that we. We're not in that idealistic kind of... We're so far from that idealistic period now. But Connie really came out of that. So, you know, there are versions, right? Lou Reed, et cetera. But Connie's kind of... What if you had someone who was a serious administrator and running, uh, you know, the supposedly top program in the country for creative writing, but who had that kind of idealism behind
1: her?
0: That's amazing to think about all of the ways in which, I don't know, sort of that kind of set of ethics, a commune kind of spirit, a community
6: spirit.
10: Yeah, because what, you know, what's come out a lot tonight, as people were talking about her and during the day, is a lot of people, Adam Hassett also mentioned giving love back to her because Connie had given love. And I think in a, in a very genuine way, not in a, a, a phony, but that kind of peace and love in the best of ways, uh, within a very structured environment, Connie has been able to give that.
0: That's amazing. Um, so when you so did you already know Connie when you got into the workshop?
10: I knew her not, not super well um, you know what's weird is it, it is very strange going to the workshop when you come from Iowa City I didn't hang out with Connie so much but you know my mom was friends with her and it was kind of her own environment and then Cammy and her daughter went to high school with me and really actually Cammy and I were not super close but, um, but we hung out with a, a kind of similar group of Uh, you know, faculty brat intellectual types. So Connie was always this presence. And I think the weird thing when you grow up in Iowa City is you don't know how odd it is to just have uh, Philip Roth one day, John Irving the next. Um, That just seemed like the norm and so having someone like connie around seemed like the norm and it's not until you left or came in as a grad student that that you kind of were made aware that this was a very unusual environment and it was a very special thing that was going on in iowa city so instead whenever i would see her coming around for readings it was always immediately to uh uh love life marriage whatever it was always that was the thing you get in the car with connie after you had done a reading and the very first thing was, always, you know, how she, I always felt like she almost cared more about my partners than, than me. And that was the gossip side that people were talking about today, which is, uh, you know, but it's sweet. It's very, again, very genuine because I think she understood that if uh, that side of things wasn't going well, then, then other things wouldn't be going well.
0: I'm here with Lan Samantha Chang, the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop at the celebration of Connie Brothers' retirement. And Sam has known Connie uh, and worked with her closely for so long, and uh, we're excited to hear some of her stories and Connie's history at the workshop.
11: Uh, it was February 1991, and I received a phone call on my landline at the time because we didn't have cells. Connie said... Hello, this is Connie Brothers from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, And what she basically told me was that she wanted to admit, they wanted, that the workshop wanted to admit me and they wanted to give me a TA, but they needed me to fill out a form that I had not filled out. And the reason I had not filled out this financial aid form was that it was really hard. It it was questions like, what languages do you know? What subject matters can you teach? You know, it, it was just so intimidating, and the process of applying for an MFA had been very intimidating for me, and I just could not do it. So I sent in my application without the form. And what I've always been grateful for is that, She never made me feel bad that I didn't fill out the form. Uh, She wanted me to fill it out so that they could give me aid. And I understood at that point, at that moment, that writing was the most important thing to her and that they wanted me as a writer, not me as a person who could fill out this form or even, yeah, or even someone who had exciting things to teach. They wanted me because I was going to be a writer. I didn't find out a lot of Connie's background until I was director. But I can tell you, I I knew her in three ways. First, I knew her as a student. Then I knew her when I came back to teach as a visiting faculty member six years later. And then I knew her uh, when I took this job as director when I was 40. And I would say um, that in the last 14 years that I've been director, there were maybe a dozen years when I spoke to Connie hours a day, five times a week, more than I talk to anybody else in my life. And that really was one of the most wonderful and lucky things that ever happened to me. I feel that Connie is the mentor of my adult life. And I can't think of a more compassionate, more meaningful person to have had so many conversations with. I learned a lot of things from her. Well, I'm a ver- I'm very much the kind of person who wants an answer and wants to know what it is, but Connie is very much not. She's a very much go-with-the-flow kind of person. And so as director, one of the things she taught me was to go with the flow. Yes, here's a problem, but we can't solve it right away. We don't have enough information. We haven't talked to people. And, you know, The interesting thing is that talking to people is what solves the problem, but I came to the directorship with, I think, fairly poor problem-solving skills in that area. Um, the most important thing about being an administrator is to learn to listen. And, and I did not understand that until I started this job. Um, and Connie is a sort of brilliant listener. She always makes the, the person talking feel heard and valued. And then she has a special mojo that I can't duplicate, which is that she manages to reach through their head and find this special thing that they need or need to have understood about themselves, and she understands it. I don't know how she does that. She did it to me last night after the event. Really, I went to talk to her when she was at her table to see how she was doing. She was with her family, um, her grandkids, uh, and her daughter. And I, I, you know, knelt down next to her chair so I could hear her because it was so crowded. There were so many people, and. She said to me, your daughter was so excited to see you up on stage. She kept turning around to look at me and smile when you made a joke. And, you know, it's, it was so wonderful. And I thought, wow, that she would have the... Sort of awareness and energy to notice that my daughter was turning around to smile at her when I was up there on the stage, like making everyone clap loudly for her all the time, was really amazing. I
0: mean, Connie was Connie began working at the workshop in 1974. How did she end up at the workshop?
11: Okay, um, I heard two stories. The first story I heard was from Connie. She she said she was hired by Jack Leggett in 1974, and. I knew Jack through the Napa Valley Writers Conference until his close to his death when he was 97 years old. And he and I talked a lot about the workshop and what it was like when he had been there. Jack had been there from 1970 to 1987. And a few years after he arrived, um, he hired Connie. Connie was working at the time as a kindergarten teacher at Willowin School, which is a very small private school in Iowa City that was at that point brand new and she i think the 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 there's sort of a porous membrane between the workshop and the community and i think it was more so at the time people would just come to parties workshop parties and connie was there one night And then she met Jack, and then a a little bit later, he ran into her at the new Pioneer Co-op, which was also at that point very new, and said, so, would you be interested in a job? (laughs) And he tells me this story, you know, a few years ago when he was in his 90s, saying that that was the smartest hire I ever made. And this is a man who hired some amazing people and who let in some of the most um, sort of, famous writers who've been through the workshop, including Michael Cunningham, Jane Smiley, etc. Um, He said Connie was the best hire he ever made. And I told Connie about this because she loves Jack. Um, And she said... you know why he hired me? Um, he hired me because we were at a party and he saw me walking around with this writer who had had too much to drink, walking him back and forth and back and forth, and he knew that I would be good at working with this population.
0: <laughs> I want to ask you one last question. I think that the moment, the first moment when I began to feel very emotional last night was when he said, "Connie stuck up for women at the workshop."
11: She really did. Connie was an advocate. She was an advocate for people's manuscripts. She would, according to office lore, bring piles of manuscripts back to certain people and say, reread this. I mean, that is the level at which she was able to bring women um, more closely into this program and its experience. And she has always been an advocate for me. For example, when I was. Uh, a new mother. She encouraged me to bring my daughter to work. She had a little bassinet. Ty had a little bassinet in my office, and I could nurse her whenever I wanted, and she was just around all the time until she went to preschool. Yeah, my, my office is still full of children's toys.
0: Like, I always sort of felt that, I think, as a student, and I think I felt that the workshop was a space in which women teachers um, and classmates also um, advocated for me, and that there was kind of this this interesting, almost invisible lineage of mentorship. Mm -hmm. Um, And to realize that, I mean, of course Connie was the source of that in so many ways.
11: Yes, she was the support of it and the source of it. She really knew how to support people. I will say Connie has also been extremely, she's been a huge ally of mine in my efforts to make this program, to open the program to wider populations, to attract and Um, matriculate more students from various diverse backgrounds, and she's always been 100% behind me with that.
0: So I'm here with Tamika Cage Conley, who is a fiction writer, librettist, and all-around artist um, who graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop in 2018. Uh, the name of her recent libretto is A Gathering of Sons, and you can read her work in Winter. last winter's VQR, in which she had a story, and uh, she has some great memories of Connie that she's going to share with us. So I
12: remember being very stressed last summer about... Um, Balancing family with being a fiction writer and being a person who was really trying to make a significant mark with my work as a poet, as a fiction writer, as a playwright. And I just felt that there wasn't enough of anything. I didn't feel like there was enough of me. I didn't feel like there was enough time. I was concerned about resources. And I sort of had a breakdown in Connie's office that I didn't see coming at all. I just sort of collapsed in her chair because I think at the time I was just waiting for a number of different things to come in. I was just in what felt like a a holding space. And I think I was just exhausted, you know, as a a mother, um, also teaching, also writing. It was just pressure from every side it felt. And Connie said, you know what the problem is? It's that you think you can do everything because you can do everything. And you look good while you're doing everything. But you have to accept that you can't do everything. And the fact that she spoke that clearly and that effectively and that accurately. And the fact that she saw that deeply into me at a time when I did feel like I was doing everything, I did feel like I could do everything, but ultimately I couldn't. And the fact that she saw that amidst all the hundreds, literally the hundred people in the workshop and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds outside Iowa City who continue to still call upon her, to still reach out to her, who still feel deeply connected to her. But in that moment she saw me and it was, it was very much that, that burden was lifted because she saw me and she gave me refuge and I think that that is what Connie has meant to the Writers' Workshop over all the decades she's been here, is that she's provided refuge and safety and vision for so many of us who have needed it right at the precise moment that we've needed it, and we felt more seen and more loved and more humane.
1: Here's Gallaudet Howard, fiction writer and teacher. Did
0: she gave you- advice I got, because when I came, I went and talked to her, and I was five months pregnant, and I knew I was going to have a baby in the beginning of the second semester of my first year, and I said, I'm a nurse practitioner, and I want to—I don't want to lose my skills, so I want to look for a job around here, maybe just, you know, per diem or something, and Connie looked at me, and she said, you are going to have four months in the workshop before you have a baby, and you are never going to have this time again, and you should take these four months and just write. Somebody has told you you should take four months and if you like it, right? And you should do that. And I did. And I've always been so grateful for her to say, stop, just do this. Have the baby, bring it to workshops with you. It's fine. But don't try to have two fingers at once. She was very wise. So, Eileen, tell me about your memories
13: of Connie. So I was close friends with Gish Jen when we were in the workshop. And I, I don't remember exactly how it happened. This was a long time ago in the early 80s. But Gish and I were in her kitchen um, in her apartment, and she sneezed. And she said when she went into the workshop the next day, Connie asked her how her cold was. <laughs> so that was that was basically how we all felt about Connie. She knew all. In, in my second year in the workshop, I had a terrible experience with... Uh, one of my workshop leaders and I just felt destroyed and I left the workshop. I wasn't going to come back. I missed two, two weeks. And then I thought, no, why am I, why am I letting this happen? And I, I came back and the first thing I did was go into Connie's office and tell her everything that had happened. And I said, I don't know what to do. How do we make this right? And Connie went around and made everything right for me so that I could come back to the workshop and, and not have Um, The awful feelings that had built up influenced the rest of my time in the workshop. And uh, I'll always be grateful to her for that.
1: And now we have Danielle Evans, author of Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self.
4: So when I came to the workshop, I was was 20 and Connie was appalled. Um, And I was also convinced that it was a mistake. And so I would have recurring nightmares that Connie was like, it was Connie's job to tell me that I wasn't actually supposed to be here. Um, she always had like a green piece of paper. And in my dreams, she was like chasing me around with this green piece of paper. So if I didn't get the paper from her, I wouldn't have to leave. But if Connie was able to give me the paper, then I like would have to go home. Um, and I feel like Connie was like nothing but kind to me. And in fact, would like regularly call me to check on me. And to the point that I thought that she did that for everybody. And then like after like years and years, other people would be like, oh, Connie would like call me and give me jobs. Connie would like... Send me to bring food to people. Connie would like tell me to give them a ride. And I realized like at that point that actually in fact I was just one of the people Connie sent other people to check. <laughs> 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 That's
10: how I learned.
1: And now we're excited to welcome Tom Grimes to the show. He's the author of five novels, the award-winning memoir, Mentor, and also a play. He's a former director of the MFA program in creative writing at Texas State University and a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. He also edited the workshop, seven decades of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, 42 stories, recollections, and essays on Iowa's place in the 20th century American literature, which was published in 1999. Tom, it's great to have you on the show.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: So... We're talking about Connie Brothers and the role she Mm -hmm. played in the Iowa Writers Workshop. But let's start at the basics. For those of our listeners who are not aware of the Iowa history or who are sick of it, I don't know. You know, there's some of those, too. Uh, No. No. Yes. This is is like the episode for all the haters. Um, (laughs) What is the workshop and how did you end up so deeply connected to it?
7: Uh what's the workshop? Um I was the first workshop um in the country. Uh, it was formed in nineteen uh, thirty-two. Um uh um it was funded briefly by the CIA during the nineteen fifties. Um seriously. Um, I did not know and, that. You know, and um it became the first program where you could study creative writing. So you had people like Flannery O'Connor there. And uh, Paul Engel started it. And it was because it was a state university, uh, to my understanding, like Harvard or Princeton or Yale just wouldn't be interested. Um, They were able to do this. And they started out in Quonset huts. They didn't even have, like, their own building. Um, and then it started to grow uh, after World War II. You know, guys had were on the GI Bill, um, and they started going to school. Uh, Joy Williams was there. She was the only woman in the class at the time. And then in the 60s, uh, programs started to proliferate, um, and they grew and grew. And when I took over the program here at Texas State in nineteen ninety one. I believe there were um, about sixty MFA programs in the country, maybe a few less. Now there are about three hundred and fifty. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's just exploded. It, you know, it's sort of like high schools are gonna be giving out MFA degrees, I think, at some <laughs> point. Uh, oh, man, I mean in
1: Iowa so I was like basically patient zero for that. Right.
7: Exactly. Exactly. I met Frank in Key West. uh, And very briefly, he went to he was at uh, Key West annual writers festival. I went to hear him talk. And I wanted to just ask him one question. Hey, if I get into Iowa, because I've applied, am I too old to go? I was like 32 or something like that. And I Said that to him. I said, Can I ask you one question? As he's walking past me, nobody else is in the lobby, you know, lobby. And uh, I said, I just have one question. I applied to the workshop, and he said, Yeah, you and 800 other people. And he just kept walking, (laughs) he didn't stop, you know. He was talking. Yeah. And um, uh, so I stood there, and, and he went and got a cup of tea, and he's walking back toward me. And I'm thinking, well, he's going to talk to me. He puts his hand out like he's going to shake my hand. So I put my hand out and then he just looks right over my shoulder as he's walking past me. He doesn't shake my hand. He starts talking to the guy behind me and says, hey, it's great to see you and shakes that person's hand. So I'm standing there with my hand and, you know, midair uh, to use Frank's actually title of his book um, and I went home and I tore up my copy of Frank uh, Stop Time. And, oh my gosh! Uh, and uh, I said, "Fuck Frank Conward. My wife was like, "What are you What are you doing?" And then, oh, you know, six weeks later, Frank Con- Frank calls. He's looking for Tom Grimes. He said, "I read your manuscript. It's fantastic. You have to come to Iowa." And I was just astonished. Um, but instantly, we had this rapport, and I just I just put all my trust in him. Within 30 seconds, I said, I don't think I can finish this book without help. And he said, Well, when you come here, not if, when you come here, you'll get it. Um, so you can have whatever you want. Connie will call you next week. I'll see you in August. That was it. Other than, like, um, I was a waiter, so he ate in the restaurant. It was a four star restaurant. And he told me it was the best meatloaf sandwich he had ever had in his life. And, uh, <laughs> And, you know, I said, well, I can get you the recipe. And he said, give it to Connie. <laughs> you know, oh every, everything went to Connie, you know, which just, and it was always that, always Connie. And then I did that anthology, which was not my idea. It was handed to me, the idea, uh, by Lee Haber, an editor, um, uh, who asked my agent, just for anybody. And he said, Tom. And, um, and actually – my agent called Frank. I, I think I said you want to please check this with Frank first. And so Henry now called uh, Frank, and Henry called me back. He said, "I think Frank was thought that I was calling him to ask if he would do the anthology." And he <laughs> said, "I don't have time. I'm also doing this other book about Iowa, the eleventh draft for another house." And Henry said. Uh, no, I'm calling just Tom wants your approval. So because they want him to do it. And he was like, Oh, Tom would be fantastic. So I just that's how I wound up, uh, you know, doing that book.
0: So it's, you know, you mentioned the anthology. And yeah. I think, you know, for, and so many, so many amazing nuggets, I want to go back to and everything sure. you just said, but The anthology, you know, I was, I started the workshop in the fall of 2003 and and, uh, I was in ZZ Packer's workshop and I, you know, I went to some store and had a copy of the anthology and Mm -hmm. it was how I learned about workshop history and it covers Mm. seven decades Right. And has all these essays in it, and it, about the workshop's place in 20th century American literature. Mm-hmm. And you know, judging by the work you did on that anthology, and of course, all of the things that have happened since it was published, mm-hmm. you know, what is the place of the workshop in in American literature? How do you feel like the culture of the workshop? Does it? You know, we were talking here a little bit about mm-hmm. um, how the director sets a tone, um, but mm-hmm. also the ways that you know all sorts of people who um, are are less well known.
2: Um, right. are
0: also people who are setting who are who are making the the feeling of the place and it, and it is sort mm-hmm. of such a wild and and wonderful right. feeling I should say to sort of bring this full circle you mentioned mm-hmm. you know Frank Frank passed away in the spring of mm-hmm. 2005 that was my last semester at the workshop oh, right. and okay. so I was also in the last full workshop that he mm-hmm. taught mm-hmm. um and then I was also there when the interviews for director were taking place so it was sort of in like a very curious way I think I was sort of around or happened to be around mm-hmm. it sort of moments of right. change for the workshop and so coming mm-hmm. into it with the history from that anthology mm-hmm. which is also a, just a great history of American mm-hmm. of creative writing in American classrooms and the way that it's kind of spread around the world mm-hmm. um it was really helpful for me to have that context
7: well I'm glad that it was and um, um I had a story about Zizi uh when I I went up to do some research in 1998 year before the book came out and I t- spoke to Connie and I said um who's here that I don't know that I, and who should I ask for work? And immediately she said Zizi, Zizi Packer and she gave me a number so I called Zizi <laughs> and I said uh, hey can we meet and talk and she said yeah uh, let's meet at the coffee shop next to the Engler movie theater I said okay um, I said you know I'm six foot, I have a beard I'm balding or whatever how will I recognize you? She said I'll be the black person <laughs> uh, and I said come on seize man it's not that bad and of course it was it, it, it really it really is it
0: really yeah, it really you
7: know, was and and sam you know sam chang um has done an amazing job of changing that situation and the model needed to be shattered um and I think going with sam is very warm uh as afraid to, uh sorry compared to frank who's very aloof um you know, really changed the the entire tone of the workshop. He's done an amazing job in terms of getting funding for everyone. Um, uh, it's not as, from what I understand, as cutthroat, you know, or to different people, you know, for people because they would get funding instead of, you know, some people got it and some people didn't. Um, so, um,
1: and that was kind of important. I feel like that was a an ethic that Frank wanted the workshop mm-hmm. to have that people would mm-hmm. be ranked and would compete mm-hmm. in that way. Am I wrong right. to think that?
7: No. Um, he Frank liked to play games, and he played them. I don't mean head games. I mean he played you know all kinds of games from the time as a kid um, to compete. And so, yeah. And so the workshop was kind of like that. And I think I was the first one, you know, that he just stumbled onto and was like, here's a book I can publish. It's my first year as director, second year. And so he – it was like kind of a star system. He didn't know – anyone else's name, you know, my name and Charlie D'Ambrosio's name, uh, for the most part, um, uh, because Charlie and I were so, so close. And I guess there was sort of a star system, you know, which can be really unhealthy, um, because you're either, you know, one of the stars or you're not. And I didn't understand at the time how isolating it was. I mean, the friends that I made are still my close friends. But I think people probably looked at me in different ways, you know, and projected onto me things, um, you know, people that, you know, people probably thought I was someone else. Um, and, And as far as being a director goes, I asked Frank, you know, how he dealt with being the director and all these projections on him. And he said, you know, you just deflect it. You just deflect it. And I came to understand why he walked past this jerk in uh, the lobby in Key West, <laughs> which, you know, wants to ask him, you know, his question. Which is the opening
1: um, of Mentor, I should tell the audience. It is,
7: yeah. it is right. And I'm sorry, Suki, were you going to say something? Oh, no,
0: I just was going to say it's the opening of Mentor. And also, I mean, that's that's like every AWP nightmare <laughs> uh, factorial, right, um, right to, for that to happen with I, that's that's just how that f- the feeling that you're describing I feel like I'm so intimately familiar with the anticipation of it I mean and it's a great
7: opening <laughs> <laughs> thanks yeah well it just um uh just the books are that way I'll come back to that in one second but I came to understand Frank uh, Frank's position because people started projecting things onto me, which I didn't know. My assistants would tell me this. They would think, oh, my God, Tom's mean or whatever. And and finally, one of my assistants, Katie, said, it's because you walk up to people or to a crowd of people and you don't say anything. You just speak. You don't speak. And that silence has a lot of power. And I wasn't aware of this, you know, at all. Um, and I've changed over time, I think, um, for the better. Uh, a couple of things. Um, uh, I sort of started out more like Frank, you know, Um Not so much as director, but as teacher, you know, kind of running my classroom, you know, like Frank and probably like all of us went through. You know, you sit in a room and it's your hostage. You know, they tie you up and, you know, blindfold you and gag you and stuff and proceed to flay your work and, and whatnot. And you can't say anything. And what I think of the workshop model at this point in time is that it needs to be utterly destroyed and changed. And I'm doing it myself in workshops here. Um, I can talk to you a little bit about that if well, you Let's get live. to that.
1: I wanna talk about that. Let's put a pin yeah. in that for a moment. Because because okay. uh, okay. what Tom's talking about, for people might not know, is the sort of like the standard way of running a workshop was also developed mm-hmm. at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And that involves a situation where the writer's story is handed out to everyone else in the class, everyone reads it, they come to class prepared to comment. And when they do comment, uh, the writer is not allowed to speak or com- or say anything. They have to listen to everyone else's comments. And then that's the end of this class. And that has started to be right. questions. But I want right. to just back up a little bit to what you, what we, mm-hmm. the portrait we were giving of Frank and his ability mm-hmm. to be aloof and his mm-hmm. sort of power to command the workshop over time. And mm-hmm. there have been not that many directors of the workshop. Um,
0: Correct. You know, well, there's only been one Connie. Right, and, and but Connie's 20. been there for 40
1: years, right? And one of mm-hmm. the things that was interesting to me... I mean, me, 45, I think, almost, right? right? Yeah. In all the recollections of the 300-plus riders that were up there, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I should say we're recording this on, what is it, the 13th of it's 12th right. of October what is today right yeah mm-hmm. uh, okay it's so we're,
7: we after? yeah we're Will recording we this we're,
1: we're recording this on the 12th of October so it's a week at it's like a week and a half mm-hmm. after week after mm-hmm. Connie's retirement party everyone mm-hmm. talked about her her warmth her concern oh, yeah. mm-hmm. they're all terms that are very very different than Frank mm-hmm. not so different than Sam mm-hmm. for instance I would who right. was a classmate of mine but but right. I feel like her maybe we should be not talking about the Leggett workshop or the Frank Conroy workshop, but it's really mm-hmm. been the Connie Brothers workshop all along. That that sort of warmth and organization mm-hmm. and caring that happened underneath mm-hmm. the scenes was actually mm-hmm. more important than what the director was doing in some ways. I don't know. I, what do you think about that?
7: Uh, uh, far more. I mean, Frank was you know um, this you know um, you know larger than life figure in so many ways. Um, But Connie got things done and Connie knew everything. And if you walk past her door, which was, you know, office door, which was always open, it would always be like, come in here. Come on. And she would like whisper and pull you inside. And she would either ask what was wrong or what happened or could she help. And Connie was, um, I don't want to say this. The workshop would could not have existed without Connie Brothers. Period. It would have collapsed. I believe, probably back in the seventies, you know when Connie got there, under sort of its, um, um, you know, as other programs came up around it. Um, I think Connie sort of kept it, um, uh, you know, maintained like a. Uh, what do I say? I'm not saying this. You can edit this out. Um, uh, everybody knew if they had a problem, go talk to Connie. Um, so it wasn't knew- just
1: caring for people's emotions. She was actually a pretty mm-hmm. decent political fixer within oh, yeah. the university.
7: Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she knew where all the bodies were buried. And um, she has files and files and files, you know, that go back years that some people I think probably would like to read. Um, and uh, <laughs> but Connie also, I thought of her kind of like as an air traffic controller because she had like um, – a big laptop, you know, on her desk with this huge screen. And she would have like hundreds of emails on the screen. And they would keep coming in. And she was also wear like a headphone so she could talk on the phone while she was talking to you. So she was constantly talking to everyone. And some of us would laugh. Everybody, I don't know if you guys did it, but Usually, everyone says I need to thank Connie Brothers, put it in our acknowledgments, mm. um, and at some point in history, people would say, "Who is this Connie Brothers person? Why are you all <laughs> mentioning her?" You know, but um, I loved Connie, and um, uh, of course, still do. Yeah, Connie um, was, you know, that secret presence. In the workshop, everybody knew who she was, and even Frank did. Sam, I think, became more of a partner with Connie. I can't say for sure, but um, Frank had a different workshop, um, sorry, relationship with her. And to go back to what I was saying, and again, you'll have to cut uh, cut some of this. I couldn't go to the event last um, week, and for a couple of months, I've been trying to write Connie a letter. And um, I couldn't do that. I would meant to call her. I couldn't bring myself to do that. Uh, and I was just kind of paralyzed by it. And then I felt so dejected after last weekend because I wasn't there. And then I get an email from you, Sugi, saying, would you like to be on this podcast to talk about Connie? And that's kind of how my relationship with Iowa always worked. It was just kind of like magical. You'll stumble into something. So Tom's going to be on the podcast. Tom did the workshop anthology, which was not Tom's idea.
0: So yeah. Tom, you know, you're, we're talking so much about Connie's influence on the workshop. Yeah. And, and, and do you have a Connie in your program or someone who fills a role similar to hers?
7: No, um, for the, the, my entire tenure, I had, um, I, somebody who I had a graduate student and I would pick a first year graduate student, um, uh, who would start to work for me in the second semester that the person was there and they would work for me for two and a half years and they changed constantly, uh, because they were too cheap to give me the money for a, um, a permanent assistant and Doug doors who also went to Iowa. And, uh, I asked him to take over for me. In fact, I knew I was going to ask him five years before I did ask him, um, uh, I, I hired him and, uh, in the first place knowing I would ask him He, you get a honeymoon period when you're a director and they'll often give you things uh, that the previous person couldn't get so if I said I need a permanent director they would have said well Tom we don't have the money but Doug said you know I need somebody and uh, they said okay and they hired Stan um, uh, Rifkin who is amazing And he is now the program's Connie. You know, I always say, Stan and Doug will tell you who's the next endowed chair will be. Stan and Doug will tell you this. And all the students know Stan runs most things. So he is the Connie now of the program. And I ask him for advice a lot. He just gave me fantastic advice the other day. Um, uh, So... Yeah. So, Sam, Sam
0: spoke very persuasively about um, just really interestingly about how much Connie had been a mentor for her. And I feel like a sure. lot of what we're talking about here is like the, the kind of invisible work done by, mm-hmm. I mean, the the magic, like, and it's to call it, I mean, certainly there's a magic to it, but I also sure. want to sort of write the labor of this, um, the uh, important, like care that everyone is taking mm-hmm. This kind mm-hmm. of, and the, the kind of invisible, the it's in the invisibility of some of this work, um, right. You know, you're talking about you know, Connie being in people's acknowledgements and people sort of mm-hmm. wondering who is Connie. And I think like the, the, the load that she carried for so many decades a load that it sounds like Stan mm-hmm. and Doug are, are, um, you know, working sure. in all sorts of ways that are erasing mm-hmm. and in literature, you know, mm-hmm. You were you mentioned before the character of the air traffic controller, and mm-hmm. you know, sort of the premise of this show is that you know anything in the news has already been covered in literature. And I feel like mm-hmm. you can see in literature these kinds of characters mm-hmm. that are the characters off the side, like you know, um, in Ishiguro's and Remains of the Day, there's Stevens, mm-hmm. or in Monroe's Hate Loveship, Love Ship, Courtship, Marriage, there's Johanna. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like like are, are there characters who occurred to you here um, that kind of fit in this mold?
7: Uh, Connie, um, you know, it's very interesting. I'm I'm not going to compare her to Lady Macbeth, of course. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Well,
1: well, then maybe you shouldn't say you're not going to.
7: I've said that. I've said I'm not going to compare her to Lady Macbeth. Um, And while I was thinking about it, also in Wolf Hall, there is um, Cromwell who becomes Cardinal Wolsey's um, henchman, you know, hatchet man. And, but the book gradually becomes about Cromwell. He sort of supersedes um, Cardinal Woolsey. And, uh, and I thought, you know, somebody should write a book about Connie, you know, um, that kind of person. Um,
1: I feel like the person, the reason for that is that I often tell my students that um, characters who want to be the star are, are unattractive on the page. But characters great, who, d- who uh, you know, are capable of self-deprecation, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. empathy are the mm-hmm. kinds of characters that people care about on the page. The kinds of characters that get attention on in real life are different than mm-hmm. the kinds of characters who work on the page. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I feel like a yeah. character like Connie actually, mm-hmm. like the examples that Sugi just cited, is mm-hmm. the kind of character that does work on the page but tends mm-hmm. not to get a lot of attention in real life and uh.
7: right. Yeah. of Connie's so private, so retiring, would never take credit for anything. Um
1: But the reader loves and, characters who do things like that.
7: Sure. Um and actually, uh again, this is such luck. Um and um uh, I'm writing this memoir now that is covers 40 years of the, my marriage with my wife. And I have to skip over this. I want to skip over this long period of time, almost 20 years. I don't want to write about Iowa again. I don't want to be about writing an MFA director. They're the most boring subjects I can possibly think of. And um, uh, so – I was having dinner last night with Carmen Machado because she was visiting here. I still run the visiting writer series. So I invite everybody and I invited um, Carmen and I, you were talking about her memoir, which comes out in a couple weeks and um, will be fantastic. Um, And, it just came up like how we do these things. She said, I do not really expect to write it either. And I said, well, I'm writing this one. I didn't, I didn't think so. And I, but I got this time problem to solve. You know, I want to just skip 20 years. You know, she said, well, go ahead and do it. And I said, well, my wife doesn't think I can. And uh, she said, okay, I'll tell you what. Write. Do it in one paragraph, maybe one long, emotionally, Moving paragraph that covers that entire 20 year period where a reader will completely understand you and that everything that you went through in a page or two, and then you can jump 20 years. So, what happens? I'm that's in my mind, and while I'm waiting to talk to, with you guys, I open a Word document and I start typing. I had to do a podcast today, it was about Connie Brothers. When I was accepted to study at the Iowa Writers Workshop, she was the second person to call me. Frank Conroy had been the first. I wrote a memoir about Frank and I, and in it, I wrote a passage about Connie, about how she smiled all the time and was so warm, not only to me, uh, but to every other student who attended the workshop. Um, Several days after Jody and I had arrived in Iowa City, I met Connie in her office, and that afternoon is 30 years ago. And that is the beginning of I'm going to do what Carmen said. And that's, <laughs> and that, but it happened again because you guys asked me to do this, and just out of the blue. And so now, Connie Well, this is was all be,
1: Sugi's idea, so you have to give her credit. <laughs> okay,
7: Sugi, thank you.
1: Speaking yeah. of that, why don't you read to us the Connie part from Mentor?
7: Okay. So, this is almost 30 years ago to the day uh, that um, I met her in August of 1989. So, uh, this is from Mentor. Um, Connie had shoulder-length pecan-colored hair. At 45, her face lacked wrinkles and crow's feet, and her round cheeks were always faintly pink, as if she'd just come in from the cold. Connie was slight, she stood about 5'6", and other than the fact that she never wore jeans, I can't recollect a single blouse or skirt from her nondescript wardrobe. In a way, this simplicity made her seem to me otherworldly and eternal. I've known Connie for many years, and her looks defy age. Perhaps her continual happiness keeps it at bay, I don't know. But I've never seen her upset or angry and not once have i entered her office without her looking up to smile at me the day she called her voice was slightly nasal yet softened by a perpetual whisper at times she sounded like an excited schoolgirl revealing a secret to a friend and i don't believe she ever uttered my last name from the outset it was tom it's connie she mentioned my application manuscript then she said, Frank wants you to have the Maytag scholarship. It's $10,000 a year, and you aren't obligated to do anything but right, Really? Yeah. Frank mentioned this, but can I ask you something? What is it? Tell me. Her tone shifted to one of concern. She must have sensed my nervousness and the fact that I hesitated to ask what I wanted to ask, as if by doing so, I'd be breaking a rule or causing trouble. Well, Do you think I could teach instead? You mean you'd rather work than have a scholarship? Yes. Now, why would you want to do that, she said, as if she'd encountered an endangered species and wanted to know how it survived. (laughs) I explained that I wanted to see if I liked teaching, if I did, and if I was good at it, and having two years of experience would strengthen my resume. No one's ever turned down the Maytag before, Think it's a bad idea? No, 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 not at all. Should I do it? Are you sure you want to? I glanced at my wife, Jody, who was seated next to me at the kitchen table. She nodded. Yes, I said. Absolutely? Yes. Okay, I'll tell Frank. I neglected to consider the possibility of antagonizing him and didn't know if if he was as quick-tempered as my father. Will he be upset? Of course not. He said to give you whatever you want. You sure? Yes. Positive? Yes. Okay. Uh, Then ask him. Connie did. And Frank's okay with this idea, I ask. Actually, Connie said he admired it.
0: Tom, thank you so much for that reading. It's amazing to hear uh, the sort of conversations that you all were having back Mm -hmm. then and the the way that they echo the conversations. I feel like I, the the sort of big decisions about Connie's lives that, about people's Mm -hmm. lives that Connie helped people make. Sure.
1: It sounds yeah. so much like her. It's such a great that was really such a fantastic <laughs> kind of a fantastic,
0: fantastic piece. imitation.
7: <laughs> well, I, I I can her voice was so distinct in my mind. I still hear it and she would still And the way she, she
1: shifted could, to concern like there, that mm-hmm. was I've I've had mm-hmm. that happen to me. That was
7: really right. Funny. Yeah. Um no she was amazing at detecting, you know, our you know, as students, our um, uh, vulnerabilities, I think, and, um, or anxiety. And I think one of the main things she did was, um, you know, alleviate that. So there's almost like two workshops when I was there, There there's like Frank's workshop, which is one workshop. And it was, you know, Frank was the King and everybody was terrified of him and what he would say in workshop. And there was Connie, um, And she was, as you say, you know, off, you know, behind the scenes, basically not just making sure all the wheels turned, but, um, keeping everyone sane, uh, everyone knew they could go to Connie. Um, she was the emotional, um, sort of, um, you know, heart and spine of the workshop. I'm not saying that well, but she's, um, uh, You know, her warmth, I think, contrasted uh, Frank's cold in a way that would have really changed Frank's tenure as director had he not had Connie. One thing she did say to me when she read um, the manuscript of Mentor, I had written, you know, Frank was due back in August, and Connie cleaned his office, as always, and she called me and said, no, I neatened his office. (laughs) <laughs> so she didn't want to be the you know cleaning woman, so of course I changed the word and used Connie's word. Um, and I knew I had written a good book with Mentor because I was asking Connie to read him read it as I went along every hundred pages or so, and I sent her the I don't know galleys or something, and she called me. It was a Sunday morning, and she was like Tom. It's Connie. And I said, yeah. She said, I just finished Mentor. She said, it's different than the way I read it in pieces. And I knew she was telling me how good it was. <clears throat> and she wouldn't have called otherwise. Uh, she would have sent me an email, I think. And I thought, if Connie knows it's good, it's good.
0: Tom, thank you so mm-hmm. much for, for making the time to talk to us. It's sure. been fantastic to hear you read your work. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back sometime.
7: Do you, do you have one second? Yeah. Can you keep recording? Sure. And then you can cut this if you want. We kind of touched on it. Okay. But I didn't get a chance to talk about it. It was about the workshop. This semester, instead of the story going up and everybody kind of jumping in on it, the story goes up, but the writer talks first and the writer talks about her intention. This is what I tried to do. Did I do it? Did I manage? Does this work? Did this work? And we're sort of just like a sounding board. We're not dictating. We're not prescribing. Um, It will be more of a discussion and will serve the writer and reduce the writer's anxiety because the writer will be actually guiding it, um, the conversation. And so I think it's time after a hundred years to actually destroy that model of the workshop. Um, and that's actually one of my, uh, goals or plans for the future to find out, find a way, you know, because I've said, would you drive a car that was built a hundred years ago? (laughs) Of course not. So, I'll leave you with that.
0: Tom, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's been a real treat.
7: It's been a pleasure talking to you both.
1: Thanks for being here. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Thanks to our awesome intern producers, Chloe Syme and Gilbert Randolph, who are both MFA students at the UMKC MFA program. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. If you value discussions like this one, take a few seconds—literally a few seconds—and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading.